Welcome at the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I'm Principal Research Fellow at MEI. Today, I'm extremely glad to have with us Dr. Seth Jones discussing his latest book, Three Dangerous Men. Dr. Seth Jones is a Senior Vice President at the Harold Brown Chair at CSIS. And he's also Director of the International Security Program and the Transnational Threat Project Center at CSIS. He teaches at John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Study and the Center of Homeland Defense and Security, CHDS, at the United States Naval Postgraduate School. Prior to joining CSIS, Dr. Jones was the director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the Rand Corporation. He also served as a representative for the commander U.S. Special Operation Command to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operation. Before that, was a plant officer and advisor to the Commander General, U.S. Special Operation Force in Afghanistan. Dr. Jones in 2014 served on a congressional mandate panel that reviewed FBI implementation of counterterrorism recommendation contained in the 9-11 Commission report. Dr. Jones specialized in irregular warfare, counterterrorism, and covert action. And today I'm extremely glad to welcome him at MEI webinar discussing three dangerous men in Russia, Iran, China, and the rise of irregular warfare. Welcome, Dr. Jones. It's great to be on. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to the discussion. Prior to start our discussion, just a couple of house rules. Uh, we will have a one-hour webinar. We are going to discuss for 20-30 minutes, and then we will open the floor to the question from our audience. Please just send the question using the Zoom chat box and using the MEI uh, event link. So without further ado, we can start to discuss uh, your book. And uh, while I was really interested in, uh, in reading all uh, the very dense uh, peculiarity about these three dangerous men, I realized that, that uh, the first Gulf War, as you mentioned, has a profound impact on Russia, Chinese and Iranian military officer, especially the three dangerous men that you mentioned in your book. Major General Valery Gerasimov, Jiang Yoxia, and Qasem Soleimani, who recently was killed in a drone strike uh, at uh, Baghdad airport. And uh, they all realized that no army on earth could match the might of the US army in a direct confrontation. Since then, uh, Russia, China, and Iran are focused on different tools. And these tools are the tool of irregular warfare and encompass uh, cyber warfare, private military, economic coercion, operation of information and disinformation. So uh, in your book, uh, taken from your book, how you describe each one of the three dangerous men in the way they are going to utilize this kind of tool? And also, do you think that the West is still stuck in a very myopic and narrow Clausewitzian definition of warfare? Seth, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Uh, you lay out a number of good questions from the Gulf War to the three dangerous men uh, that I highlighted. Interestingly, in none of those countries do we see um, senior, generally senior military women, which is why these are actually all, all um, men. Let me just first start with a Gulf War and then I'll get into some of the specifics on uh, the individual um, influential uh, uh, military figures in each of the countries. First is uh, the Gulf War is important. Um, it, it, is a, it is yet another sign of US uh, conventional military might. The, uh, the uh, US both in the first and in the second Gulf War, um, in the first one, the US uses uh, uh, significant joint warfare to push the Iraqis out of Kuwait. In the second one, obviously, the US overthrows the, the um, uh, Iraqi regime. And then, and importantly, actually, then becomes uh, stuck in an insurgency, which, which becomes very difficult for the US military, including the US Army, to handle. So there are two things that are of interest here. One is that the, the United States, with its Air Force, its Marine Corps, its Army, 
and its Navy has become quite proficient, not just in having military capabilities, but in actually using them to conduct operations, whether it's regime change or whether it's to defeat a, uh, uh, an adversarial conventional military in combat, the use of precision strike, the, uh, uh, the synchronization between uh, air strikes and maneuver elements on the ground. Uh, now, granted, the Iraqi army, both in the first and the second Gulf War, were not first world militaries. In either case, uh, the, uh, the US was quite proficient. In addition, there were two, at least two or three other wars that were at the same time of interest as I looked at, at, um, at Russian, Chinese, and Iranian activity. And those were this combination of, of Kosovo, Afghanistan, at least in the 2001 context, and then about a decade later, Libya. And in all those cases, we actually saw was a very small maneuver element on the ground, a US maneuver element. And in addition, a heavy focus on special operations and or intelligence units on the ground where the vast majority of the actual fighting was done by local forces. In addition, uh, there were, it was a lot of interest in the so-called color revolutions uh, across uh, what the Russians, for example, considered Africa, parts of the Middle East, uh, certainly Eastern Europe, where there was some element of regime change. And, and this is, frankly, this has significant implications for today in Ukraine, where, the, where Maidan and the, what was essentially viewed in Moscow as a change of regime in Ukraine was viewed primarily uh, as a US uh, irregular warfare effort without using conventional forces to switch Ukraine from largely pro-Russian to a pro-Western government that was interested in uh, joining NATO and the European Union. Now, I will say that, uh, that, uh, the, the, that there was very little of that that actually took place. Uh, in fact, as I look at many of these countries, um, they have much higher uh, opinions and and see the U.S. doing much more than it actually uh, actually did, but those two kinds of wars were very instrumental, I think, as I looked at and the whole focus of this was using translated sources from Russian, Chinese, and Persian, and a deep focus over time on specific individuals. So Suleimani from the time he, he was particularly in the, involved in the Iran-Iraq war, through his early years in the IRGC, then taking over as command of the Quds Force. Same thing with Grasimov from his time in tank school up through his multiple deployments in Poland and in the Baltics, obviously through his time to the chief of the army staff. And the same with Zhang as uh, now the vice chairman of the CMC, but his, his involvement in, in um, the war in Vietnam and through his multiple tours. So let me just finish with, um, with, with kind of a, an overall uh, comment about each of the three individuals I looked at. Zhang on the Chinese side, uh, Valery Grasimov, and then Qasem Soleimani and his successor, Ismail Khani. I think with each of them, what they recognized in different ways was that the the U.S. remained very strong when it came to conventional and certainly nuclear war. Now, every country has to build conventional and nuclear capabilities. They have to do that for survival, and they have to do that to deter action against them. So by no means am I arguing that irregular warfare, the use of information campaigns, support to state and non-state partners, covert action, economic uh, coercion, is done instead of conventional or, or even building nuclear capabilities. Think of them as both important components of state power. So in this case though, what we see is it's gonna be very difficult to fight the US conventionally. I mean, as we started talking about in the first Gulf War, US has significant power, power projection capabilities. But I think as we see with the Iranians, 
their comparative advantage over time, Suleimani recognizes, is in building partner forces in Lebanon with Hezbollah, in Syria with the militias that uh, the, the Iranians worked with um, over the last several years in, in reasserting Assad control over territory in Iraq with the Hashid al-Shabi, in the Houthis in Yemen with the significant attacks we've seen even recently against the Saudis. Same comments actually with the Russians and the Chinese. I, I won't go into detail, but I think what becomes important in each of these countries is how they used a focus on irregular warfare to do what I think is important in what we're now in an era of great power competition, which is to expand influence and power and weaken your adversary, but in this case, below the threshold of conventional warfare. I think in many ways, uh, they have been successful to some degree and happy to go into more details. But with that, let me just, let me just pause right now. Thank you. No, definitely. When uh, you mention efficiency in a regular warfare in, uh, in your book, uh, uh, you stress the fact several times that authoritarian regime must resource in a faster way than liberal democracy. But looking into that, um, I, in, I recall that the so-called Pandora box of mercenary and private military company, and especially looking at private military company as a component of this uh, irregular warfare, has been opened by the United States during the Iraq and Afghanistan war. So in some respect, I'm asking you if Blackwater was a good example for Moscow to follow up with the now ubiquitous Wagner Group that is not a private military, is a quasi-private military. But uh, also, if I recall correctly, not long ago, Mr. Eric Prince, who was the founder of Blackwater, opened a shop in China uh, with a joint venture with Citigroup uh, in Hong Kong uh, with FSG. I think there's no question, if you look at what uh, Valerie Gerasimov wrote over the course of the 2000s and said, um, he was and Russian officials were and have been very aware of the U.S. use of private military companies in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya and in a few other uh, countries. I think over time, there probably are two differences in particular. You, you mentioned the Russians uh, with the, the uh, U.S. use of private military companies and the way the Russians have conceived of them. One is, um, in general, the, the U.S. did not use private military companies, the, the state, that is the U.S. military or the State Department, for offensive operations. In general, private military companies were used, and this is Blackwater, DynCor, and a number of others, for several purposes. Site security, particularly where um, there was no desire or little desire to have the U.S. military do this. Um, in the focus was going to be on some train, advise, and assist with the U.S. military or combat operations. Site security, except for bases probably, um, could be shelved to someone else. And this is where the contractors came in. Um, with some elements of police training, for example, uh, the, the U.S. State Department is the lead agency for police training overseas. The problem is the State Department has no boots on the ground capabilities. So what state did in, in Afghanistan and Iraq is hire DynCor to do the vast majority of police training. Now, over time, that was actually taken over by the military because the contractors did not do a particularly good job. In addition, there were other elements of, um, of assistance on strategic planning, for example, within key ministries that private military and security companies were involved in, like DynCorp and Blackwater and a number of others. But they were generally not involved, at least as a tool of the U.S. government in offensive operations. So that's one difference, particularly from what we see in, in places like Libya, where the Wagner Group has been involved in strikes uh, from uh, fixed-wing aircraft, artillery barrages, 
the you know involvement in armored personnel carriers and and actually involved in combat operations. A second difference is the use of private military companies in in the U.S. has become very controversial. Uh, Blackwater has been taken to court. The involvement of individuals in extrajudicial killings led to prosecution. Uh, in fact, Blackwater had to change its name. Uh, it became very difficult for U.S. government agencies to work a lot with private military companies. So the second difference, I think, is that is that particularly with the Russians, that the, the, they have used Black. Sorry, they've used Wagner Group and several other quasi companies actually as as primary tools to provide site security, to provide combat operations, to provide intelligence collection and analysis in, as we've counted, uh, over three dozen countries, lots in Africa, Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya, uh, some in Latin America, including Venezuela, certainly the Middle East and other areas, including South Asia, Eastern Europe, we've seen the Wagner Group and other other companies involved, including again in combat operations. And I spoke with a number of senior U.S. officials involved in the strike against Wagner Group in Syria. Uh, they were involved in direct combat against U.S. forces. The U.S. killed roughly 300 Wagner Group contractors. But I think there we see the Russians trying to figure out whether the um, U.S. would actually conduct operations against Russians that weren't government, but were more quasi-government. And in this case, they did. They, they killed them. It was, a, it was an extraordinary strike, even as I spoke to the head of U.S. Special Operations Command, and they, they had questions about whether this would trigger escalation uh, with the Russians, which it generally did not. But I think this tool... We're starting to see the Chinese now use private military companies in a range of areas. This tool is helpful. It's, de it's deniable or at least quasi-deniable. And we've seen Prigozhin also get involved in mineral extraction using private military companies. So there's an economic incentive to using it. But again, as we're seeing in a range of, of countries, the Central African Republic and Mozambique are probably the best examples. They can be costly. They can get involved in human rights abuses. They're not always effective. So I think countries are going to have to be very careful in to what degree they use them because there clearly are downsides. And I think the U.S. experience, this is where you started off with that question, shows that there are definitely downsides to working with these kinds of organizations. Thank you, Dan. The mentioning that uh, what happened in Syria uh, was quite important because it traced the red line uh, that the U.S. was willing to cross. Uh, and if I recall correct, uh, in a matter of minutes, they obliterated more than 200 uh, Russian contractor with a barrage, artillery barrage, and helicopter strike attack. And uh, at the same time, uh, officially, the Russian military didn't blink an eye on that respect. So that was uh, where the difference between quasi-military uh, private military from Russia uh, jump in. But if we look at China, I, I always like to discuss in Chinese term uh, on private security. There is more company that have a passive use of violence in protecting Chinese personnel and uh, Chinese infrastructure along the Belton Road. But uh, the direction this is going to take uh, it's probably more looking uh, at a different option that the Western wants. Having said that, uh, in uh, your two answers, mentioned several times uh, Russia and Libya. Was uh, Libya, especially the Libyan experience, functional to the Russian way in looking at the future of war, in your opinion? Yeah, I think Libya was central in two respects. One is it was an example, and this was the United States, the UK, and France in particular, with other NATO countries involved in operations. It was an example of how to effectively use local forces. Uh, in this case, you know, there were militias from Misurata, from Darna, and other, other Libyan cities to engage in maneuver warfare on the ground and to retake or to take territory 
from the um, Libyan regime and and uh, and to get some limited assistance from outside. So uh, what those Western countries did, as folks will recall, is they deployed on the ground special operations forces and uh, intelligence units, not just for collection, but for paramilitary activity. And the primary direct involvement of military forces from France and the UK, the US and others was in strikes, uh, strikes from fixed wing aircraft and then from, uh, from maritime assets, particularly in the Mediterranean where uh, they, they could shoot cruise missiles. I mean, ideally they could have also done uh, more, but artillery barrages, cr a cruise missile, the use of, uh, of uh, drones, of MQ-9s, um, for some limited strike, but primarily also for ISR, for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, as well as bomb damage assessment. So it really highlighted how one could use uh, light military presence on the ground, enable local actors uh, to do the vast majority of the maneuver to retake or take territory, and actually achieve significant results. In addition, to using a heavy information campaign. Gerasimov repeatedly in the Libyan context was talking about uh, the role that CNN played in undermining the Gaddafi regime, the legitimacy of it, took that as a lesson on how to use information, although in the Russian context really also disinformation. Um, and, and so if, if actually, if you look at the Russian campaign in Syria, where the Russians actually don't use much in the sense of uh, a maneuver element on the ground. They rely on Syrian units, including the high-end Tiger units. They use Lebanese Hezbollah, including in and around cities like Aleppo. Obviously with Soleimani and the uh, IRGC Quds Force, as well as Palestinian militias, uh, Iraqi Hashar al-Shabi militias, and others. To, to, re, to retake territory in coordination with Syrian units. So the Russians don't deploy in any meaningful way conventional units. And, and actually I see some strong parallels with the US prosecution of the Libyan campaign and the Russian campaign in, uh, in Syria. The other big issue that happens in Syria is, uh, or, or that, that happens with Libya for the Russians is they, I think they also, become increasingly convinced that the United States is interested in continuing to expand its power and influence, potentially at the expense of Moscow. It wasn't just the expansion of NATO and the European Union to Russia's borders. Think for a moment from Moscow's perspective, expanding NATO to the Baltic states, they're bordering Russian territory right there. Um, in addition, uh, Libya was a Russian partner. Now that government has been overthrown and in its place, the U.S., I mean, we, we know Libya has been a very difficult uh, situation. And the Obama administration did the opposite of Afghanistan, where there was extensive nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq. There was virtually nothing in Libya. So that's been a problematic case. But what we see regardless is that uh, the U.S. and others were involved in overthrowing a Russian partner and, uh, and then involved in uh, replacing that with one or several actors in, in Libya. And, and as we see, if you fast forward around the same time, the uh, uh, Gerasimov, he, he over-attributed actions here, but he saw some U.S. involvement in the Arab uprisings in the color revolutions. And so Libya becomes a really important signal for, for the Russians that the US is interested in undermining regimes primarily through irregular means, especially with maneuver units on the ground. Very little US conventional presence, heavy focus on irregular activities, including irregular units. So uh, special operations and intelligence um, including other instruments of power, economic co uh, coercion, covert action, use of non-state parsers, information, disinformation. That Libya is a model of how to do it in some ways, but also the danger 
that the Russians were facing from a U.S. which was using it. So I think it has as a dual purpose, and it strikes me as as I as I have studied Gerasimov how frequently over the course of 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, all the way up to today, he frequently mentions Libya as a turning point. Thank you. Uh, I have a couple of questions more, but uh, I see already the chat getting flooded by question from the audience, and I will shift to that for the moment. And I have a very straightforward question from my colleague Azif, uh, is that the three men just did their national duty. Why you call them dangerous? The uh, the three men uh, did their uh, di absolutely did their duty. I the the whole purpose of this book is to look at the other side of the hill. So looking at um, at these three individuals in the mines uh, and and how they operated from a Russian Chinese and um, and uh, a Russian, Chinese, and Iranian perspective. The title, as as folks that read it can can see, I also spent significant time looking at, at how these figures were perceived by senior U.S. officials. So I uh, spent time talking on the record to the to several secretaries of defense, several CIA directors, senior State Department diplomats. And then many others involved, uh, including several U.S. Special Operations commanders. So the title comes from the perception, frankly, from U.S. officials that all three of these individuals, and, and actually you can see this coming out in how they're perceived in the U.S. as actually worthy adversaries, worthy competitors. Suleimani is a worthy competitor in the Middle East. He's, a, he's very difficult for the U.S. to, um, uh, to uh, compete against. Grasimov as well, particularly as the Russians get into Crimea, eastern Ukraine, Syria, even now in Ukraine again, and the Chinese into the South China Sea, including the Spratleys. So the dangerous, think of it like quotation marks, uh, where a lot of this book is focused on how the Russians, Chinese, and Iranians perceive the title is essentially how the U.S. then perceives these individuals. So that's why there's that's why that is in there, and it almost comes directly from a quote from um, an individual, a senior U.S. official I interviewed on the record. Oh, thank you. I agree with you. I mean, when we talk uh, about Qasem Soleimani, Gerasimov, and Jen, we are talking about soldiers, soldiers, someone that lead from the front, something that Qasem Soleimani did until the last minute of his life, something that Gerasimov used to say he was a commander of a tank division, and something that is really strange if we look at today People Liberation Army with Jen, that is one of the few generals with uh, real combat experience. I mean, say that uh, I have a question from Anthony Tio, who is founding board member here at MEI. It's very dense, so I try to compress it, and I hope uh, I'm uh, addressing it correctly. Uh, Non-traditional warfare is old as Hannibal's bloodbath defeat of the SPQR Legion, Senatus Populusque Romanorum, at Cannes, together with Hannibal uh, mercenary. Cadians and Tuareg cavalry that swamped the Roman and the Spanish mercenary cavalry. It wasn't encircled, it was a massacre. But despite that massacre, Roma survived another 500 years. But the United States is not old, nor is new Rome. Through having strong military uh, warrior like uh, General Patreus that was with us uh, just a few weeks ago in a webinar, and uh, General McChrystal. But the United States short-term focus uh, and wobbly divide in Senate, the people of America, plus the rise uh, of military and uh, stronger government in China and Russia uh, is uh, putting pressure on the United States. Uh, but the United States is going, basically, this, I, I go on with the question, to survive as Rome did or not. Uh so just to be clear, that last part, the question is, uh, will the U.S. survive like Rome or not? Was that is that kind of the heart of the question? 
I yes. think I just tried to compress yes. it. Uh, it was versus the historic Roma and a week and Hannibal short of Cartag support. Your comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I, I see, and I say this too, I see the, the competition that we see now across the globe, and I think it, it will increasingly be global. I, d I do think the U.S. national defense strategy, which will likely be released next month in January of 2021, will probably focus too much, at least the early drafts, on the Indo-Pacific as opposed to recognizing that competition really increasingly, especially with the Chinese, is, is, uh, is global. But I think overall, uh, it is a competition of systems. Uh, so on, you know, there, on the one hand, there are a number of uh, political economic systems that support some elements of freedom of uh, electing officials uh, uh, freedom of speech, uh, generally freedom of religion, freedom of access to information, and those that are in the authoritarian um, uh, realm, which generally have closed so uh, societies, do not have general access to information. Uh, I mean, we can certainly see where Hong Kong has gone as the Chinese have uh, enacted various laws in place, upped the Chinese uh, security control uh, uh, in Hong Kong, um, no longer generally freedom of uh, political participation, certainly not what they had before. So we have competing systems. I have to say, and, and I may be a biased to some degree based on where I live and where I've studied, but I think in the long run, uh, populations across the globe are going to strongly prefer over time living in generally open systems uh, which support capitalism, open uh, free trade and open, uh, open economic systems. As, as challenging as the last couple of years have been for the United States, I mean, I think there's also a great sense of resiliency where uh, U.S. citizens can criticize and vote individuals out of office, which happened in the 2020 elections. Trump was, uh, was not reelected and it was deeply criticized over his time. So I think over time, there's going to be, I would say, some resiliency in, in democratic states and systems against uh, against authoritarian ones. In fact, I, I, I have to say, I've been at a conference the last couple of days um, that uh, a number of our Asian partners that the Koreans and Japanese have put on in the Washington DC area. There's a very serious debate about whether the Chinese economy is actually plateauing or peaking as opposed to continuing to rise. I think if you look at Chinese concerns about stability. There is, there are concerns about stability in the West, about uh, the future of and stability in Hong Kong over the long run. Concerns about meddling from outside. We know the the Chinese are very uh, concerned about um, any criticism. We've seen it recently with uh, with uh, uh, women tennis stars. So I, my argument over the long run is going to be, I, I think it's going to be very hard to control populations to run uh, and control state-run media and to have populations over the long run be okay with that. So um, will the, the U.S. survive? I, I think so. And I, I think if you look at Samuel Huntington, this is where I'll end and his democratization waves that we're in a reversal right now globally. But I suspect, as we've seen with past waves, uh, we will see that, uh, uh, we will see that um, we're, we're in a reversal right now, but we'll see a wave at some point in the, in the future. So I don't expect this to, to uh, continue um, uh, you know, in, into the future. There's no linear path forward. And, and I, I, I think there are serious debates, frankly, about, uh, 
Chinese vulnerabilities over the long run that are going to even this thing out. It's not correct. As you are mentioning, there is an ongoing discussion on economic development and the possibility for China to maintain the growth. But the answer to that was also drawn in the historical resolution that was published just a few weeks ago in Beijing, in which the two core points are moderate prosperity. And uh, also it's mentioned at the dual circulation. So a kind of way the China side to protect the inner part of the economy while still be connected globally. Uh, but uh, this um, give me the, the chance to move from the boots on the ground that we have been talking about uh, up to now to the cyberspace, not only in terms of face recognition, AI control of the population and, uh, and so on, but to look at how uh, uh, the competition in the cyberspace uh, is changing the rule of the game. In the book, you mentioned one sentence, they can't close the gap by getting stronger. They can only close the gap by making the US weaker. So in your opinion, uh, how is the future of the role of cyber operation? And especially, is it China going to surpass Russia in information dominance capabilities? Said that you need to unmute yourself. I think is the most used sentence in 2020 and 2021. I'm just catching up to you. That's all. <laughs> I think when it comes to cyber operations, I actually think that Chinese have much better capabilities anyway than the Russians. Uh, when I look at MSS and PLA versus uh, GRU, uh, SVR, and even FSB, Chinese have serious. Uh, cyber capabilities. Obviously, so does the United States with NSA, the British with GCHQ. What the Chinese, I would argue, have done differently is they have not been as overt and aggressive in conducting offensive cyber campaigns to take down systems. So if we look, for example, at the Russian, at, at two kinds of activities the Russians have been involved in, one is the uh, offensive uh, cyber attacks as part of military campaigns, where we see in the 2014, 15, 16, and then up to 2021, the Russians up until now have primarily focused on irregular hybrid activity in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and that is um, not using much in the sense of conventional forces, uh, but supporting Russian backed rebels to conduct the war. So below the threshold of conventional war, but to add to that element, offensive cyber capabilities and campaigns. So the use of Indestroyer, Black Energy, Gray Energy uh, as part of uh, GRU operations. Uh, th those have been important targeting critical infrastructure, including blackouts in Kiev uh, and taking down the the critical systems of uh, electricity companies, of uh, freight companies in Ukraine and others. So that's been an important, probably the most aggressive offensive cyber campaign to disrupt critical infrastructure activity of a foreign government. The second is we've also seen the Russians involved in offensive campaigns, but using non-state actors. So if we look at the colonial pipeline or the Greeley beef plant attacks, cyber attacks by the Russians, in both cases, there were Russian cyber hackers operating from Russian territory or in part from Russian territory, conducting serious operations. The colonial pipeline was a ransomware attack against, uh, against colonial pipeline, which, which owns the uh, major distribution hub for oil and gas from Houston, Texas, up through Linden, New Jersey, and the pipeline that goes there. So that was shut down uh, during and after the ransomware attack. There were huge gas lines at uh, US um, gas stations across the Eastern seaboard, including in the Washington DC area. There's a week period where it was virtually impossible to get gas in multiple states in the US. Um, that was a pretty serious impact in which Americans actually felt pain 
there was a run on gas for their cars that was the direct result of an offensive cyber campaign from Russian-linked hackers. We have not seen the Chinese actually do, at least yet, that kind of activity. They are fully capable of doing that. Frankly, as are many Western countries, including the US, is fully capable of conducting attacks like that. So I think the question is, under what conditions would we see the Chinese uh, do that? Most of the cyber campaigns that we've seen the, the Chinese do are involved in disinformation, including around COVID-19 and the origins of it. And uh, so involvement on social media platforms and others. Uh, we've seen heavy Chinese use of cyber for espionage, uh, including uh, stealing large amounts of security clearance information. Uh, that was the OPM, Office of Personal Management hack, or the, um, the uh, uh, Equifax hack, where the PLA went in and, and stole social security numbers and other sensitive information for half of American adults. Uh, the, uh, a lot of that became public in a Department of Justice um, investigation and indictment of named PLA officers. So that's where, but every country is involved, frankly, including Western countries involved in that kind of action. I think the question is if we started to see tension over say Taiwan or more broadly within the South China Sea, would we start seeing China actually conduct the kinds of operations that we've seen the Russians do that they are fully capable of doing right now, but have decided that it is for the moment not in their interest. So I, I, I'm not a cyber expert. We have individuals like Jim Lewis at CSIS uh, that is a legitimate cyber expert, most of which uh, I have to learn from people like Jim. But I would just say that's kind of my rough uh, answer to, uh, to Chinese uh, cyber capabilities. They have much greater ones than GRU, than, uh, than uh, SVR and FSB have chosen for the moment not to use them. And uh, as you mentioned briefly about Ukraine, uh, I have a question from my colleague, Georgi. Irregulars in Donbass are portrayed as a freedom fighter by Russia now, but they were disavowed when they shot down a passenger plane. How much a manipulator state can be made responsible for its irregulars? Well, uh there's certainly, there's certainly, there can be a couple of things that go along with uh, holding states accountable. How much states care about this is an interesting question. So we have seen the Russians and Wagner Group held accountable for, or or at least identified. They the uh, uh, they've been sanctioned. U.S. has sanctioned Prigozhin and elements of Wagner Group. So there can be some economic steps that are taken. There, there can also be uh, individuals taken to court so they can be held accountable in, an, in some courts of law. And we've seen Russian private military company individuals sued and taken to court in foreign countries, uh, including in, uh, in and around uh, Syria and in Africa, where they've been taken to court or at least charged. Uh, there may also be a kind of naming and shaming cost. I don't know how much at the end of the day uh, uh, some of these companies or countries are going to care that much about shaming. There also is a physical threat, which is, as we've seen with Wagner Group in Syria, where we actually had several hundred that were killed uh, in combat, in that case by a U.S. strike and a heavy use of uh, of airstrikes with uh, PGM, precision guided munitions, uh, killing those forces on the ground. So there may be several ways to hold them accountable in that sense. At the end of the day, though, I, I would just say that um, when it comes to the use of some of these irregular forces, whether they're, you know, Iraqi, Hashid al-Shabi, Shia militias, whether they're Wagner Group or, or other Russian private military or security companies or quasi ones, or whether we're seeing a growth in Chinese ones, they're still viewed as, at the end of the day, in you know, cost-benefit analysis, generally beneficial. 
So there is a very serious question about whether measures taken against them, financial, including sanctions, uh, threats, including uh, strikes against several of them, legal measures taken against them, whether and how much that actually matters uh, in the end and how much these companies and countries care if they're serving a useful purpose and in some cases actually making money uh, and, and in a few cases, a lot of money. So there's a, I suspect it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, uh, of, uh, of, a, uh, of a case by case analysis of costs and benefits. But I think overall, I mean, we see these countries continuing to use them. So I would say it hasn't deterred them so far. So thank you. And uh, following your answer, I have uh, another question uh, from uh, Georgi, uh, focused on Qasem Soleimani and on the Iranian part, uh, a particularly reprehensible form of using irregulars as cannon fodder is the use of Shia Afghan in Syria by Iran Fatimiu. Uh, and we can add that there are other cases uh, like the recent conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, any way to investigate the issue of coercion? When you say coercion, meaning coercing the use of these individuals that are then deployed uh, to countries like Syria or Nagorno-Karabakh, coercing individuals to go into these uh, places. That, that's, that's what the question is. I, I do believe. I do. Okay. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, th that in the case of the Zainabayun or the Fatimayun or, or Hashir al-Shabi or, or other cases where we've seen the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Quds Force involved in part in recruiting individuals and then training them and then either coercing them or in some cases we do see individuals volunteered and volunteered in part probably after heavy indoctrination about the broader goals that they're serving. I, I think it's, frankly, it's gonna be hard to do much about the coercive or the, um, uh, the, the, the much more kind of volunteer element of identifying, recruiting, training, and then using in operation uh, these sorts of individuals. And part of the reason I say it is switching, switching uh, focus areas. There have been a lot of efforts to, uh, to try to deter this kind of action from uh, coercing individuals to become suicide bombers on multiple fronts. That's, that's a difficult, when, when you're talking about individuals who may not have many other choices in life, and they are indoctrinated to serve what is sold to them as a greater goal in life, to fight for the broader Shia cause. Uh, much like we've seen uh, you know, groups like Al-Qaeda or, or uh, Daesh recruit suicide bombers to go fight, part of this sort of broader narrative that they are serving a greater good and that in the afterlife, they will be rewarded. There's a similarity with how we've seen Shia foreign fighters recruited as well. That's a very difficult pipeline to stop. And I think really the only ways to start to effectively get into that are probably to, uh, to start treating this as kind of combating that extremism within the areas they're recruiting. So out of the Shia populations in Afghanistan, or in Pakistan, or Iraq, uh, highlighting in many cases, if one can do this convincingly, that they're serving, frankly, as puppets of a foreign government, or as we saw with Al-Qaeda or Daesh, serving as puppets of extremist organizations. How well that works? I think it's a tough sell. So I, I would just say um, there are some combating violent extremist steps that can be taken in these communities. Uh, there can be some broader information campaigns that can be conducted. Conducted, How successful they are, I suspect is gonna vary quite a bit. But I, I see parallels, frankly, here with some of the um, uh, extremist sort of jihadist uh, recruitment efforts as well.
And uh, as uh, the time uh, is running short to the end uh, of our event, uh, from my side, I'm abusing of my position of moderator to ask one of the latest questions, and I'm quite interested uh, in posing this question. Because uh, if we look uh, at George Cannon long telegram, at the time he was urging the American to study the Soviet Union, to study Russian, to study the language and culture, to be better prepared to understand what uh, they were going to face. And this some the way that uh, you are looking from the other side of the wall in your book, and uh, that's very promising in understanding not only uh, Gerasimo, Soleimani, or Zhang, but uh, the next one who is coming next. But uh, I have a, a personal perception that as uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, the scholar, uh, on Soviet Union and Russia were prized and cherished in the United States. At the end of the Cold War, they were looked at with suspicion, something of a fifth column. And uh, again, as a sinologist, I have the impression that uh, in the past, uh, someone that is able to understand Chinese culture is valued. And now is uh, just for the fact that study Chinese is in a way considered a kind of panda hugger. So in your opinion, is the United States, uh, unlike the time in the Cold War, where uh, there was uh, a trust in investing uh, in language and cultural and uh, preparing the, uh, the interpreter and the people who can understand the Soviet Union, are the US prepared to do this now? And the knowledge of China is uh, able to percolate uh, to Capitol Hill. I think this is probably the area where the U.S. is weakest at this point. Uh, that that uh, when when I see Chinese activity to understand the U.S., understand its strengths and vulnerabilities, its uh, reading of English material, I do not see the same kind of of um, of resources effort that the U.S. has has uh, has put into understanding China, I think the U.S. is extremely weak here. You started off uh, with the uh, uh, Kennan highlight, and and I would just note that in his long telegram, Kennan says, and he urges the U.S. to study quote that the Soviet Union quote with the same courage, detachment, objectivity and determination with which a doctor studies an unruly and unreasonable individual. Um, but to really understand the, uh, the in, in this case, a competitor. If you look at, at, uh, at how few uh, individuals speak Mandarin, how, um, how little the U.S. has put into broader translations of China. I mean, I think what's stunning is during the Cold War, the U.S. Uh, had a, a U.S. information agency. It had a foreign broadcast information service that translated huge amounts of Russian, Czechoslovak, Polish, East German radio programs, television broadcasts newspaper accounts, speeches coming out of senior leaders, translated them into English, debated them. These were publicly available in any library, any major library in the US. That whole effort is gone. There is no US information agency anymore. It was, it was uh, decommissioned at the end of the Cold War. There is no rough comparison with the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. Um, the what's now the open source enterprise, which is within the U.S. Um, uh, Directorate for National Intelligence or the DNI, it's not even open to the public anymore. There's no large-scale translation of Chinese material. How how can you even begin to understand what is going on inside of China if you're reliant on uh, you know the Chinese to translate their own material? I think it's stunning. One of the solutions at, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies we've done in combination with a range of foundations is we are starting an open source China uh, uh, analysis center in January of 2022. 
this has little to do with competition. It's more understanding. What are some of the key debates going on inside of China? It's, it's involved in large-scale translation of the major Chinese political, economic, military documents, science and military strategy, among several others. The goal is just to understand, help understand. And I think that is where the U.S. is weakest right now. It's far too insular. And if you look at the Chinese newspaper with the largest domestic circulation right now, it's a compilation of foreign news articles, including English language reports translated from foreign languages, including English, into Chinese. There's no equivalent of that uh, in the U.S. So this, this, I think right now, is the one of the primary U.S. vulnerabilities. It is far too insular right now. Things are starting to change, but, but slowly. And uh, with this, uh, I have just uh, another question from the public to close, uh, and we have three minutes, uh, and I think we will need three days uh, and not finding an answer. But you mentioned it before that uh, we need to look uh, from the other side, uh, and when you were mentioning at the end of the Cold War, looking at the NATO expanding very fast uh, uh, toward Russia. And we see now this concentration of troops uh, on the Ukrainian border. Uh, and the fact uh, that uh, if there is a status quo that is preserved that Ukraine mostly has this functional state, uh, probably there will no Russian forces jumping in. But if there is a perception from Vladimir Putin that uh, uh, Ukrainian military forces are getting stronger, support from the West uh, is more concrete, uh, do you see, and you have the last three minutes, uh, any problem arising from Russia and Ukraine uh, in the next weeks? Yeah, we've looked at satellite imagery of the Russian buildup and uh, a, a couple of just brief points. One is the forces that they have, 100,000 uh, forces roughly at the moment with uh, some indications that they could go up to 175,000 or so. These are offensive forces. These are MLRS, these have uh, artillery, um, the, it's, it's easy to, to bring in air support, strategic bombers, fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, these are main battle tanks, but these are, these are offensive forces. There is, I mean, that should not be disputed. Second, though, is that, uh, uh, and importantly, if the Russians went into Ukraine, they would likely move fast. There's no deterrence here by denial. Uh, the, the U.S. does not have any or, or, or other NATO countries do not have meaningful forward deployed forces compared to the Russians. The Ukrainian military is still relatively weak. Russian armor, particularly with airstrikes, I think would be able to move in hours, certainly days into Kiev if that's where they wanted to go. So I, I don't think there's any any the Ukrainians are not going to stop a Russian conventional advance if they go. The third is to highlight this would be a big change in Russian activity. In Crimea, they went with Spetsnaz KSO intelligence units. In eastern Ukraine, after that, they went with uh, largely same kinds of forces, uh, KSO, Spetsnaz, the training of irregulars to operate in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, for example, against the Ukrainian government. In Syria, Again, the maneuver elements were Lebanese, Hezbollah, uh, 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 Shia militia from various countries that we've already talked about, Zainabayoun, uh, Fatamayoun, and, 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 and other, other foreign uh, militia. This would be a big difference. Uh, it would also potentially make them quite vulnerable. And one of the things I suspect Putin is thinking very carefully about is the last major invasion they conducted like this was in the 1980s in Afghanistan. Uh, it did not go that well in the end, nor did it go that well for the US in Iraq or Afghanistan with 100,000 plus forces. So if the Russians move in, I am very well aware of what Valery Gerasimov has studied. He has studied his own country's campaigns in Afghanistan and the U.S.'s campaigns in Iraq and, 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 uh, uh, and in Afghanistan more recently, that I think is going to be 
or should be at the forefront of their minds if they go in with a conventional campaign because that will raise the prospects, not of the U.S. or NATO countries entering directly, but um, entering through irregular means, anti-tank missiles, clandestine covert support, cyber operations, all the stuff we've been talking about these countries doing now being done back to the Russians. I think that's their cost-benefit calculation right now, or if it's not, it should be. And uh, with this note, uh, considering that I'm an incredible optimist and finger crossed uh, nothing is going to happen in the following week, uh, please allow me to thank you uh, for uh, your time, for being with us, and especially to thank all our audience that has been with us from the beginning to the end, especially the fact that it's quite uh, late in the evening here in Singapore. Thank you again for being with us and another thanks to the Middle East Institute event team for supporting us in the back. Have a great day. Bye.